Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 5, October Half-Term Special 2022. Hello and welcome back to the podcast and a very warm welcome to our brand new podcast studio. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'd like to say it's some luxury sort of, you know, high tech, high spec recording studio. Um, but, it's not that. <laughs> no, it's we've, we have a table, we have some mics, we have some new uh, background noises, some new power tools, some different noisy students walking past. So you might you might detect some slight changes in the random noises off. But yes, we have we have moved and we are doing our inaugural podcast from our lovely table. So a warm welcome to half term. Yes, well done. You made it. Hopefully you're relaxing with a cuppa. Yes. Um, and uh, we bring you our usual sort of light offering. I think you're going first, aren't you, Tom? Yes. So as is now our tradition, we have culled some random stuff um, and are not even pretending to have any sort of categories for it anymore. We've just got three things each, which we're going to read and discuss and blindside one another with in the nicest possible way, just to get us through this, this slot with something a little bit lighter. So yes, I'm going to start because I know you want to finish. Um, so the first of my three, now you might have noticed because we're recording this one quite close to its release, um, there's been a lot of news about. <laughs> <laughs> I no, mean, just news. <laughs> which of the many, um, I, can't, I think I can swear, can I, in a light episode? You can't, episode? no, we, we have a clean rating on this podcast, which I'd like to retain. The slew of news uh, that has been coming through, political, I, I mean... Which of the many blunders of the Tory party it's will we be discussing? News and more news. It's been a tsunami of news. So <laughs> I thought I'd just, uh, I'd just mention news because my first one is about that. And actually, I picked this before we were engulfed in an enormous hail of news, but it's just made it all the more relevant. So this is an article which I found in The Guardian, but is actually adapted from the website of Rolf Dobelli, who is a, a writer. And he says, well, the headline that The Guardian have said is news is bad for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right there. But news is bad for you and giving up reading it will make you happier. Oh, <laughs> I don't think you're going to follow that uh, advice. Well, possibly, possibly not. I don't know. But he he has um, set out this argument, which I rather enjoyed even before we all got overtaken with a bit of a surfeit of news just lately. He he thinks that news is is not a great thing. I must admit, I can I can sort of see where he's coming from here. I have a lot of sympathy with these arguments. So I'm going to, as usual, praise it as much as I can. So he opens by saying, in the past few decades, the fortunate among us have recognised the hazards of living with an overabundance of food, obesity and diabetes, and have started to change our diets. But most of us do not yet understand that news is to the mind what sugar is to the body. News is easy to digest. The media feeds us small bites of trivial matter that doesn't really concern our lives and doesn't require thinking. Unlike reading books and long magazine articles, we can swallow limitless quantities of news flashes which are bright coloured candies for the mind. Today we've reached the same point in relation to information that we faced 20 years ago in regard to food we are beginning to recognize how toxic news can be mm. so yes this idea i mean i think we talked about it didn't we with um technology and all the kind of notifications on social media giving you a little 
little dopamine hit and everybody kind of beginning to realise how addictive that is. He's making the point that news kind of does something similar. So he he then goes on. I mean, I'm not going to read all of this because it's very long, but he, he has these headings. News misleads, mm-hmm. is irrelevant, has no explanatory power. Uh, he also says it's toxic to your body. And here's another another shout out to the limbic system, Emma. Which I know we mentioned. We did. In a previous one. Panicky stories spur the release of cascades of cortisol, which deregulates your immune system and inhibits the release of growth hormones, apparently. Um, your body finds itself in a state of chronic stress. Well, I think many of us can, can sympathise with that in mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks. Um, news increases cognitive errors, feeds the mother of all cognitive errors, confirmation bias. Mm, yes. So that's an interesting one. Our brains crave stories that make sense, even if they don't correspond to reality. News inhibits thinking. Thinking requires concentration. Concentration requires uninterrupted time. News pieces are specifically engineered to interrupt you. Mm. Fair point, I think. Um, News works like a drug. As stories develop, we want to know how they continue. Yes. So... (laughs) Not sure we do at the moment, but, no. but you know, I, I take the point. News wastes time. If you read the newspaper for 15 minutes each morning, then check the news for 15 minutes during lunch and 15 minutes before you go to bed, then add five minutes here and there when you're at work, you will lose at least half a day a week. News makes us passive and kills creativity. So he he's making this point that he's gone without news. And I must admit, I have sort of felt this occasionally that, that it's kind of designed to be addictive it's kind of designed to confirm the biases of people i think the point where i started to get a little bit of an inkling about the nature of news was actually during covid where which i thought was an absolute gift to journalists because they could print a story one day that would say you know new covid variant set to evade vaccine and then the following day with absolutely no sense of kind of shame would then fill the same space on their page with you know signs that the new covid variant is going to get squashed by the vaccine they could just put two completely contradictory stories on consecutive days and fill fill their space because it is just a massive endless battle to to fill space but yes i i wondered what you thought about that what your thoughts about news i my initial response is are we making a distinction between news as he's sort of just described it and journalism i know that they are sort of sim that they're sort of bound up together but i'm just thinking about the sort of journalists who have won big prizes for their sort of service to i don't know to to humanity Mm. by breaking stories that otherwise would never have found their way into the public domain so I don't know, I'm a little bit torn here. As described there, yes, I, I can see how news can be, you know, all of those things. But I'm, just, I'm thinking about like... Um, sort of long-form stuff. Long-form stuff. I'm thinking about... Um, I've, uh, uh, oh, gosh, his name escapes me now, who broke the story uh, for... I think he was the Washington Post, maybe. Um, Carriroo. Car- 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 John Carriroo. Oh, yeah. Um, was he Washington Post? Can't remember. Can't remember, but he broke the story about Elizabeth Holmes. He and um, you know exposed a lot of the sort of really nasty things that were going on in in Theranos. And you know, I and and a lot of the news stories that came out around the Harvey Weinstein scandal. I, I, you know, 
Woodward and Bernstein. I thought you were going to mention you know, Watergate. Yeah, yeah, Watergate should be there. up there. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. But I'm just thinking in more in recent times and the things that have really sort of struck me and, and the work of journalists. Uh, you know, I would that would be my argument against some of the things that he's saying. I think this kind of fast food news, I, I agree with everything that he's put forward there. Um, but I think the long form journalism, as, as you put it, I think is is really important. Yeah, you hear a lot about journalists doing kind of hard stuff in in countries far away, you know, where where bad stuff is happening, struggling more and more to get their stuff heard now because of this kind of need for clicks and views and likes and and all of that sort of thing and viewers. Mm. But uh, I, I think probably the the one to look at if you if you're interested in a kind of satirization of news is is the comedy The Day to Day, which came out about 25 years ago now, but still looks like people are using it as a as an instruction manual for formatting news when actually it was supposed to be an absolutely vicious spoof of news. <laughs> uh, but the people who make news <laughs> didn't appear to notice because they continue to. Uh, to kind of follow the, their sort of spoofing of the weird sentence constructions and sort of odd priorities of news. I mean, there's, there's a famous episode where they actually provoke a war between two countries because it means they can they can report more and more sensational news. Oh, goodness. <laughs> but yes, I don't know whether we should all, you know, as, as things appear to be collapsing around us, maybe do what you're saying there, watch out for the fast food of news and maybe maybe escape it in favour of something a little bit longer in form and a little bit more perhaps worldwide in in scope. Yeah, I mean, you're a big, a fan, big fan. You've you've said this before about um, the BBC World Service, aren't you? And you like to listen to it so that you sort of range and, and zoom out a little bit further. So we can get very sort of caught up, particularly at the moment in the UK with the, you know, the, the soap opera that plays out Latest in the notification news. on your phone telling you something terrible. Yeah, and the same with Twitter. You know, we've, we've, we've lamented sort of Twitter as well and, you know, the fact that you often need to sort of dig beneath the headline and really satisfy your own mind as to what's going on. I mean, a, a recent one that comes to mind was um, Mark Drakeford is a, a really... Uh, <laughs> might call it shocking video footage of him um, having a go at a uh, Tory um, MP. Um, and and you, you, on face value, you could be really team Drakeford. And if you sort of watch that video in the context of what was being debated and discussed, which was ambulance wait times, it's it, it tells a different story. So it's, it's the fast food of news that is what I think this, this particular writer is, is, was, you know hit the nail on the head with there beware of of that sort of fast food news there we go spend your half term eating your newsy greens (laughs) (laughs) over to you okay um so i'm kind of bringing it back to wales with my first contribution um we have a new national poet of wales her name is hanan isa um, she is a writer, a poet, spoken word artist, um, and she is also Welsh Iraqi writer. Um, she says that poetry is the space where I go to make sense of the world. And obviously she's sort of um, very actively involved in in lots of all things sort of literature in Wales. Um, but I think sort of part of her mission is to get more people into poetry. And I think um, in an interview for Women's Hour, she was sort of 
saying that as an adult coming to poetry, you kind of have to forget some of the things that you learnt when you sort of encountered it for the first time in school, which I kind of agree with, although I'm quite a fan of deconstructing poetry. I quite, I've quite enjoyed some of my A-level um, language and literature lessons where we were sort of picking apart a poem. But I understand that sometimes that can sort of take away some of the joy of poetry. Um, so I thought it was worth sort of giving a shout out um, to Hanan Issa. And I thought it might be uh, an opportunity to read one of her poems. And we talk a lot about um, having a survival cuppa and tea is something that uh, <laughs> is um, a constant theme in our office, isn't it? So it's con- just constant finished happening. my latest cup. It's on a the ritual. table next to my mic. Yeah. <laughs> so she's got, um, Hanan's got uh, a poem called Tea. And I think it'll get us thinking too. The cup is the first step. A delicate teacup suggests high teas decorated by lace napkins and pale gloved fingers that reach for neatly cut sandwiches, while the talk slices up an empire. A mug of char to calm the nerves in a crisis is a matches half-time helping that synchronises switches across the country. But are the builders enjoying their brew aware of the painful past contained in its dry leaves? A politely hidden history that traded tea for the poppy. Or that, once in Boston, pouring tea into water stood for discarding colonial control. A sorrow infused over time, seeping bitterness into boiled water. Although, when mixed with mint, jasmine, star anise or cinnamon, the taste of history is steeped in the present. A place we all try to infuse with the taste of us. Meticulous ceremonies that celebrate friendship. Gentle as life, strong as love, bitter as death. Chai is poured from on high, spilling along the silk road to Tesco's. Merging bitter matcha with sweet chai, soaking into barabrith raisins overnight. Cultures and languages permeate life, weaving through our flow of experience, iridescent in the chaos. That's Tea by Hanan Issa. Wonderful. It made me think of two things when you're reading that poem. These are both going to be very random. I remember reading children's stories when I was little in which, you know, they'd be catching smugglers um, and they were always smuggling tea. And I could never work out why they'd be smuggling tea because, of course, <laughs> they were really old children's stories when tea yeah. was like really valuable and you and you would want to smuggle it. And I was like, why, why? you know, small child, I was, why would they smuggle tea? Like, wouldn't they smuggle like gold or something? Uh, <laughs> it also made me think that my, my one of my little ones came home needing to do um, writing a set of instructions um, and uh, I caused all sorts of trouble because she wanted to do the instructions for. They were all told to do the instructions for a cup of tea. Um, I caused all sorts of trouble by sending her back into school with the instructions for making tea, which included using a teapot, which was not what they'd expected. They were Uh-oh. expecting bag and mug kind of action, and by the time she came back, an edit had taken place. And were they just trying to open that old wound of controversy as to what comes first, the water, uh, the uh, you know, does the milk go in first, or does the yeah. does the hot water I think they thought that was the only fight they had on their hands. They were wrong. <laughs> well, sh- you know, speaking of children's stories, I, I was worth mentioning that um, Hanan Issa also contributed to, amongst other things, the Mab, which is a retelling of the Mabinogi. I know you, you read to your children often, so um, stories for children from Wales. So worth worth looking her up. You can follow her on Twitter at Hanan underscore Issa underscore a lot of our favourite things in that article. Right, okay, uh, we always have a tweet, don't we? So I've brought us a tweet. It's kind of traditional mm-hmm. to include a tweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this tweet is from someone called Ed Bermila. Uh, it's about universities 
But uh, lest we be considered to be uh, looking inwards a little bit too much, I think this is probably applicable to certainly any educational institution and, and possibly wider. So here we go with uh, absolutely no insult meant to our, our fine vice chancellor or any of the other people at the top. It goes like this. Universities pay staggering salaries to presidents, chancellors, vice presidents and provosts by the dozens. And in every administrative office, there is a 57 year old woman called Peggy with a title like admin assistant too. And that's the person who actually runs the university. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Who's our admin assistant too, Emma? Ah, <laughs> oh, isn't it the truth? Yeah. I mean, I can think of a number of people that prop up this institution that don't get paid anywhere near as much as they should for what they actually do in, in this place. I'm probably going to be given the chop. We're for, all going to get sacked together. Yeah. But no, it's absolutely true, isn't it? There, there's uh, somebody in every institution. So I, I'm maybe for our little... Uh, resolution for half term perhaps we need to go and find peggy admin assistant too and if we don't have the power to give her a pay rise make her a cup of tea <laughs> or nominate her for or them for an award um that that always goes down well doesn't it yes. something they do well in our place is is uh, to acknowledge the work of of people who like peggy do prop up this place yes peggy we salute you we do Ah, oh, nice. Okay, back to me quite quickly. Yeah, didn't see that come in, did you? I didn't, I didn't. Okay, so um, Mallory Blackman. Um, Mallory Blackman uh, was the former Children's Laureate. Um, she actually visited Cardiff Met several years ago um, and uh, gave us a, a lead lecture. It was very inspiring. Um, children's author, of course, um, of uh, Noughts and Crosses, which was sort of remade, I think, by the BBC very recently. But she's been in the news um, just lately calling for year-round black history in schools. And I thought it was an interesting article from the BBC because it actually name checks Wales, uh, where we are right now, um, as a sort of um, applauding the curriculum in Wales, which has changed this year, as we know, to include diverse experiences of people belonging to ethnic minori minorities, while schools in England are not currently required to teach any black history. Um, so I thought that this was a good perhaps a good opportunity to um, big up some of the sources that I found interesting and useful with regard to um, black history and the curriculum. Um, there are three that I wanted to just give a shout out to. Um, the first one being BAME Ed Educators um, and this is bamedednetwork.com. And this particular website has got a real wealth um, of resources uh, for educators, but what they say of themselves is that they are a grassroots network aimed at ensuring our diverse communities are represented as a substantive part of the education workforce for teachers and leaders in education. We seek to address the inequities in the recruitment of black, Asian and minority ethnic colleagues into the teaching profession and lack of support to ensure progress in those careers. So, um, lots of really interesting articles there, coaching uh, opportunities um, for BAME educators who are looking to sort of um, uh, access leadership opportunities. So that's the first one I wanted to mention. Um, the second 
is theblackcurriculum.com. The Black Curriculum, as they say on the website, is a social enterprise founded in 2019 to address the lack of black British history in the UK curriculum. Um, Lots of different programmes offered, um, but also, again, a wealth of, of resources there which would be useful for educators out there. And then finally, bringing it back to Wales, is DARPL, Diversity and Anti-Racist Professional Learning, which, as they say, brings together a diverse team of providers with lived and professional experience through a professional learning and resource hub with a Welsh perspective in raising multidisciplinary racial consciousness as we all work together within the new curriculum for Wales. Um, you know, and I, I I know that we're sort of quite keen, Tom and I, um, to do some more episodes where we sort of bring some of this um, work into land within the context of our own subjects, um, you know, trying to look very specifically at instances of black history being being brought authentically into our subject domains. Um, So hopefully we'll have some more episodes um, on those themes coming forward. But I thought it would be a good opportunity, given what Mallory Blackman has has raised, to identify the fact that there are some really great organisations out there already offering a wealth of resources to teachers. Yeah, and there's some really interesting subject-related stuff, isn't there, about uh, black and minority ethnic kind of issues i think it's much more interesting than to to dive into that detail than to kind of sit sort of saying we really need to you know do more for black people of course we Mm. do when they're underrepresented but there are some very interesting very detailed discussions that that we need to have and we also do need to look at where all the black teachers are i mean i I was just thinking as you saying that i don't think i've ever awarded qts to a black pgc student in music and that is not good no not at all Um, And so I guess what they do do well on those websites is point you towards articles, resources, etc. that that get to the nub of what what we're craving and what you've just mentioned there, Tom. Um, I think the more that we can discuss those particulars and those specifics and get into the uncomfortable territory, then that's the only way that we can sort of find a way forward, really. Yeah, definitely. Okay, time for my last one. I'm going to try and rehabilitate news a little bit now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know how I I like these things to kind of have have a little bit of unity to them. So I'm circling back to the question of news. um, And as we sort of might have established at the start, um, enormous amounts of words are blathered out by huge numbers of journalists, uh, most of which in the great cliche sort of ends up as tomorrow's chip chip wrapper as they say <laughs> uh, it's all very disposable and and not particularly profound or good for you so i just wanted to give a shout out and i'm not quite sure how this is going to work particularly in the audio medium I'll give a shout out to the the bit of the news that i like to go to first for an absolutely razor sharp incredibly concise absolutely on the nose kind of deconstruction of what's going on when when the world appears to be going completely mad and and it might surprise you given that i am well known for being absolutely dreadful with anything visual um absolutely terrible practically face blind in fact mm-hmm. uh, i've i've said hello to people on campus who are not you who i thought were you i mean that's where we're at <laughs> <laughs> And then I've bumped into you and thought, oh, you're wearing different clothes. Uh, no, it was just a different person I thought was you. Uh, that's right, because you're great at remembering names. Yeah, I'll you do, do the, the faces. faces, you do the names. And that's why we're such a great team. But the, <laughs> the one place I do like to turn is some of the cartoonists have done absolutely brilliantly 
um, just lately. And I wanted to try and bring an example to the table, which is not very easy to do when we're working the audio, mm. audio medium. So I might need some uh, some assistance to kind of describe to to the listeners what I'm bringing here. Um, anyone who has been uh, ignoring the advice of my first contributor today and has been consuming vast quantities of news um, will remember that, that the beginning of the end for uh, Liz Truss, who at the time of recording is is the soon-to-be outgoing Prime Minister. I mean, by the time this comes out, goodness knows how many Prime Ministers ago she'll be. But <laughs> <laughs> at the time of recording, she was quite a recent one. Um, she uh, had to sack her Chancellor and appoint Jeremy Hunt, who was probably not of her kind of political tribe. And he then proceeded to completely dismantle her economic plan while she sat behind him um, in the House of Commons and Commons and sort of stared ahead <laughs> in this sort of trance-like state mm. as he just kind of pulled apart absolutely everything she'd done. And by the end of that day, uh, by about sort of eight o'clock that evening, the cartoonist Morton Morland from The Times had got up his cartoon, which was going to be in the next morning's print edition. And he had managed not only to encapsulate the kind of surrealism and the sort of brutality of that moment from a political point of view, he'd also managed to do it by paying homage to a, a, a massively famous classic piece of art. And, and that's the sort of genius of, of what they managed to do. So I'm, I'm bringing you this piece. But this is the massively classic piece of art. It's a very famous Rembrandt. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, of, oh, of an anatomy gosh. lesson. Yeah, it's, it's pretty disturbing to look mm. at. It's a very, very famous Rembrandt painting. Mm. Um, for anyone who's familiar with it, it's, it's a, an anatomy lesson where they used to kind of dissect a, a, a executed criminal in front of all these medical students and all these people with ruffs on are sort of gathered around while this this kind of anatomy professor is like <laughs> chopping this guy's arm apart and all that sort of thing. And, and it's a very, very famous piece of art. And that evening, Morton Morland put into the Times this brilliant cartoon in which Liz Truss <laughs> is the uh, the prisoner on the table. Have, you know, And it, actually, they, they've also added Jeremy Hunt actually chopping her leg off as well, which is not in the original. But every single one of the people gathering round is a brilliant caricature of one of the senior conservatives they're all present and correct there while he kind of brutally <laughs> chops her leg off and and chops her arm up and i just thought it was so such a concise kind of summary of the amazing sort of dismantling of her political project that had taken place by jeremy hunt the kind of surgical destruction of everything that she stood for and had crashed the economy with and he'd managed to do this brilliant sort of homage to rembrandt at the same time and he got it up by the end of that day so clever it's so clever absolute genius i mean a lot of the times this stuff is behind a paywall but morton morland who is by far and away one of the best cartoonists working today i think his his twitter account always posts his latest piece of work and he has the most incredible ability to just cut right the way through all the blather and encapsulate the kind of events of the day with something really sort of eye-opening yeah Absolutely. I mean, it's astonishing, really. I'm just looking at it as, you, as you're speaking. You've done a good job of describing there. It's worth, <laughs> worth going back to the original and looking at the, the design choices that he's made. I mean, because in, in, in his version, Liz Truss 
isn't quite dead. No, she's actually, <laughs> her eyes are open. As yeah. She gets it like, chopped off. And it's kind of like, there's, there's multi-levels there because the original guy would have been a, a condemned prisoner, you see, who'd been executed. So he's kind of making that condemned prisoner kind of link. But also the fact that she's still alive and she's having her leg hacked off by Jeremy Hunt. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Oh, yeah. I love it. In the interest of balance, I've got another one here, which is uh, from the from the days of Boris Johnson, where <laughs> uh, Boris Johnson is sitting in a in a food sort of a food stall and just creating this disgusting, horrible mess of of food. He's just throwing things around. It looks absolutely foul. And this customer is standing in front, and next door is is this caricature of Keir Starmer looking sort of very disapproving um, at Boris Johnson's disgusting foody mess. But in front of him are just bare, beautiful, gleaming counters. Uh, and the sign on top of his shop, his shop is simply called Don't Buy That, with an arrow pointing at Boris Johnson. <laughs> and the, the sort of point that he's making there, that, that it, they criticised him, but they weren't sort of able to make land any sort of alternative prospectus. Again, it's just, just kind of outlined so quickly and so concisely and so brutally in a single frame. Mm, so, yeah, you're right. It, you're right. It's razor sharp and very concisely gets to the point. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's all there in black and white and funny. That's what I love about yeah. these sort of parodies as well. And, and art like this it really does make you chuckle but it, it also hits you quite hard <laughs> yeah so perhaps that's if we're looking to avoid the fast food maybe we've got our long-form journalism which is our kind of greens yeah. i don't know what these would be little little perfectly formed bits of sushi or something i don't know <laughs> yeah i like it i like it all right <laughs> moving on um i'm gonna take you somewhere completely different now um I don't know how this is going to land, but I should probably, for context, tell our listeners that um, it was recently my birthday and Tom presented me with a gift today, in fact, that uh, caused me to sort of drop my original third item um, in favour of this. So it's a beautiful book, actually. I'm, I'm a little bit of a sucker for a beautiful book. It's a hardback and it's called The Golden Mole and Other Living Treasure by Catherine Rundell. Illustrations by Talia Baldwin. Um, and um, just uh, reading the blurb on the back, it says, the world is more astonishing, more miraculous and more wonderful than our wildest imaginings. In this passionately persuasive and sharply funny book Catherine Rundell tells us how and why a lavishly illustrated collection of the lives of some of the earth's most astounding animals the golden mole is a chance to be awestruck and love-struck to reckon with the beauty of the world its fragility and its strangeness um now this is this was sort of a bit out of left field for you tom because you've bought me some really interesting books over the years you bought me barack obama's one of his sort of first books and uh usually sort of there's usually some kind of it's either <laughs> education related yeah. or, or political um so this one sort of really struck me. A bit left field. I just saw the reviews. They looked interesting. I have no idea what the book's like. Yeah, well, it it, it takes... It's, it, the chapters sort of take a creature at a time, you know. It's got the wombat, it's got the golden mole, the Greenland shark. It reminds me a little bit um, of... Um, oh, I've forgotten the name of it now. It's, uh, 
And oh, but you can remember that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can remember it had beautiful, beautiful illustrations, um, and it was about uh, creatures. So I will look forward to reading it. However, um, I, I ought to give a spoiler alert because the first thing I did was to because I, I noted that the final chapter um, is entitled "The Human," so it takes all of these uh, sort of animal creatures one by one, and then comes finally to the human. So this, this sort of piqued my interest. So I turned to the back of the book so spoiler alert if you don't want to know the end of this book and you want to run out rush out and read it before listening to my blatherings then um then then do so um so this caught my attention and it's interesting because it 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 starts with a sort of cautionary couple of paragraphs which i'm going to come to at the end um before moving on to a story which helps uh, serve as a bit of a metaphor for what uh, this author is trying to say with this book so i thought i'd tell you the story first and i'm reading directly from the book now it is a story about humans and our reckonings with treasure the story of the sibyl i think it's sibylline or sibylline books the books were a collection of orac oracular sayings written in Greek poetry in around 510 BCE. The tradition runs that an elderly sibyl, a prophetess, offered the last king of Rome the chance to buy nine books containing the prophecies of the world. The apparently true story of their purchase has been retold many hundreds of times. So I'm going to tell you it as it is in the book here now. So there once was a great and flourishing city with feasts and hard work and citizens leading busy lives. One spring, an old woman came to the city dressed in hard worn clo uh, cloth and strong shoes. She had with her nine books which contained all the wisdom and knowledge, all the as yet untold secrets of the world. She would, she said, sell the nine books for the price of one large sack of gold. The city's people found this both mildly hilarious and amorphously annoying. This woman, they said, had very little sense of economics or value of gold itself and they suggested she take her books and go. As you wish, she said, but first she would burn three of the books. She built a small fire um, in the square, burnt three of the volumes in which all the secrets of the world were contained and went on her way with the smoke still in the air. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole story, but in between, she comes back um, a couple more times and each time they don't really take her seriously. She ups the ante, asks for more money um, and again, she burns the books. Okay, so we're dropping back into the story now when she's just got three books left. The old woman arrived with three books in her bag. They could have them, she said, for four sacks of gold. The townspeople, whose mathematical skills were impeccable, laughed uneasily. She couldn't be serious. The old woman asked for firewood. Wait, said the city's people. Perhaps it'd be worth having a look at least. Leave the books with them. They could have a series of debates and consultations and at some non-specific point in the future, they would let her know if they agreed whether or not there was anything worthwhile in it. The old woman shook her head. If I could trouble you for that firewood? They refused to bring the firewood. You don't want the books. Not at that price. We can't afford it. You need to be realistic. So the old woman shrugged. She gathered a heap of dried grass left over from haymaking, which had been poor that year, thrust two books into the centre and set them alight. They burnt fast. When she returned the following spring, the single book under her arm, the city's people were waiting for her. We know, they said, eight sacks of gold. We've got it here. The price, said the old woman, is 16 sacks of gold said the populace. We've planned and costed for eight. Sixteen is cheap, she said. 
You're being ridiculous. The old woman looked at them with the full force of her eyebrows and the wiser among the people shrank back. It is cheap. The book contains gold beyond all gold. It's been a hard year. We're struggling. The old woman, who was collecting kindling at a surprisingly swift pace, said nothing. The citizens ran back to their homes and argued furiously, and in the end, they gathered the gold. They dragged 16 sacks back to the woman's pile of sticks, which she had just topped with the last remaining book. They seized it with hunger and hope and desperation. The old woman nodded and uploaded the gold sacks onto two strong horses and turned to leave the city. It had better, they called back to her retreating back, be worth the price. Of course it is, said the old woman. Of course. It's astonishing. She reached the gates of the city. She spoke without turning round. You should have seen what was burned. And she left them alone with the one remaining fraction of all the wisdom and knowledge, all the secrets and undiscovered beauties that had once been in the world, to make what lasting good they could of it, and to treasure what was left as best they might. Now, obviously, the moral to the story is very, very clear there, but this is what um, the author says before she goes into the story. The world is so rare and so wildly fine, populated with such strangeness and imperiled astonishments. Among them, human attention, active, informed, sustained attention is perhaps one of the rarest and most powerful. So this book has been a wooing. It has been an asking for your attention and for your wonder, because so much can still be saved. Fear and fury are galvanic, but they will not suffice alone. Our competent and attentive love will have to be what fuels us. For what is the finest treasure? Life. It is everything that lives and the earth upon which they depend. Narwhal, spider, pangolin, swift, faulted and shining human. It calls out for our furious, more iron-willed treasuring. So, ah, I thought I've I thought that was beautiful. I thought it was very well put. Great story. Um, and I can't wait to read about the living treasure that she writes about in the book. Wow, it's been a hit. I'm glad that book's been a hit and a slightly profound end to a light episode. But it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm looking forward to is uh, looking at someone with the full force of my eyebrows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Surely you've had a teacher like that in the past. I think it was me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you have it. Another light episode with some not so light. We always say it's going to be light and then uh, do a few heavy things. It varies in density, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. (laughs) We wish you uh, a restful half term. Um, We hope that the the rest of uh, this term goes well and we'll be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Thanks to everyone whose goodies we shared with you today and we hope you enjoyed our random selection of interesting things. Podcast artwork is by Beth Lanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod, so come and say hello if you want to. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.